Glenn Brockett with Pioneer 90.1 FM, and we have a very special guest here on the telephone. Today we are going to talk about, we're going to take a bit of a time trip and a little bit of a road trip up north. We're going to go along the highway, going to cross the border, going to head up to Manitoba, and we are going to learn a little bit about the Winnipeg-Manitoba music scene of the 1960s, and we are going to learn about uh, the story, basically, of how one of Canada's most popular bands of all time, how they came to together their roots all of that uh, you know it just was a wonderful scene up in winnipeg but we're going to focus today on just one aspect of the scene and the story of how the guess who uh, came up and came to prominence and it's a very interesting story and i have a guest that is the perfect perfect person to talk about the history of the guess who uh yes he was born and raised in winnipeg yes to quote the guess who this dude is homegrown don't come from hong kong he's a music historian he's a musicologist he's a broadcaster he's an educator and he's the author of some amazing music biographies he uh, that have been published worldwide i know because i have them on my shelf i i love his book i you know pardon the pun of that they put out about arthur lee and love he's put out album uh, books about neil young john k and Steppenwolf, uh, The Guess Who, The Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers, just to name a few. And one of my all-time favorite, favorite books, aside from the Arthur Lee and Love book, The Randy Backman Story. He's with us today to talk about The Guess Who, the story of The Guess Who. And it's it's a very interesting tale as we go back uh, in time. And what better way to take the, uh, the old time machine and bet what better person to take the time trip with then acclaimed author John Enerson. Did I get the last name right, sir? Because your work is so wonderful. I want to make sure everything is uh, dead solid perfect. Well, I get called a lot of things, Glenn, but it's actually Enerson. Anerson, see ya. I, I've heard it a couple of ways and I wanted to make sure. So uh, that is awesome. That's great. We have this uh, already from the jump, so I don't say it a bunch of times wrong. And you're very kind and waiting for me to not say it wrong. But we no, have it right. John Anerson, thank, thank you so much uh, for, for uh, taking the time out here. I mean, during these times as of this recording, um, the world's kind of, uh, you know, and up in our worlds uh, are basically uh, very limited access for anything. And the I think it's turned upside down. Exactly. What better way to put it as we are just trying to cope with what is the new normal. But now as we have the time, it's so I guess what better way to, to use that time uh, productively and, and, and to have some fun with it is to go back and, and talk about music. And it's such an easy common element. I mean, you have put out, like I said, I mentioned before some of the books that you, you've put out and we're going to talk about the guess who. But man, alive. I mean, like I said, you're there's probably like half of a, a a row on my shelf with your books. I mean, <laughs> what was it about rock and roll, man? Uh, where when did this love of rock and roll begin? I mean, you were up in Winnipeg. You were kind of at the right place, right time, right age group. Please tell me a little bit about yourself and 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 how this whole rock and roll thing came from your perspective. Because we were talking off mic before, and we, we you, you told me some really cool stuff. But I want to I want to hear about this, and, and I want to let the listeners at home to, to hear your story before we get to the story of how the guess who came to be well you know i was at as you say i was at the right age for when the beatles appeared on the ed sullivan show you know february 9th 1964 i mean i was glued to the tv in winnipeg we were already hearing beatle music because in canada the capitol records released their records their singles uh, up here whereas in the states a capitol records turned them down until uh, i want to hold your hand so I was the perfect age, perfect time, you know, just about to become a teenager, age 12, when the Beatles hit. But, you know, what's interesting about my life is in my family, 
nobody played any kind of musical instruments. I mean, the only thing musical that anybody played was the record player. And, um, you know, I wanted to be, I mean, I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to be George Harrison or I wanted to be Brian Jones. So I finally convinced my parents to buy me a guitar in, in early 1965 and uh, taught myself really how to play. I, mean, I used to go I used to go and watch bands because back in those days, and I'll probably talk about this uh, when we get into the Guess Who, back in those days, you could see live music everywhere. Everywhere there were bands playing, high schools, junior high, teen clubs, community clubs, community centers, stores would have bands playing in you know, teen departments, fashion departments, all that sort of thing. So for a kid learning to play, and I wasn't alone, there were probably thousands like me, we could go see live music and we could watch guitar players. I remember you know, watching Randy Bachman when it was still Chad Allen and The Reflections, being able to go see him at a community club dance and watch what he was doing, yeah, standing in front of him, and I'd be about one of about 25 other pimply kids standing in front watching Randy play guitar, and then, you know, it, it, it impress, pressing in your brain what he was doing and going home and trying it. Or Derek Blake from the Devrons, which was Burton Cummings' first band, you know, or seeing, you know, I mean, I miss Neil Young just a little bit. He was more towards my brother, older brother's age. But Neil Young, I mean, he grew up just up the street from me, um, playing in, in the squires all, all over Winnipeg at the time. So, I, for me, I got I started pl- playing guitar spring of '65, and by spring of '66, I was playing dances at community clubs and bands, and I just kind of went through that whole scene. It was such an incredible time, and when it came time to start to write books about the the music scene in Winnipeg and how incredible it was, I was reconnecting with people I already knew, and that kind of helped. I mean, I knew the guys in the Guess Who, and I knew the guys in the Devrons and the Orphans and the Gettysburg Address and the Jury from back in those days. So that kind of helped me connect with them to tell that story. But I guess, I mean, I I was a history teacher for 30 years, a high school history teacher. I guess it's the love of history uh, and music history and popular culture that really got me, um, you know, I, I guess it, it, it really kind of got me interested in music history and what that was all about here. And, I mean, if if you remember vinyl albums and buying them and, and they'd have sleeve notes on the back, I used to pour, them, you know, pour over them like they were the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, <laughs> trying to glean as much information as I could. And I suppose I had in some ways, a photographic memory that I could remember all this stuff. And I could recite who played in, you know, which particular band at which particular time, recorder at which particular studio, all of that. So after I stopped playing and I became, you know, a teacher, I continued to still be involved in music. I ran rock music programs every year of my 30 years of teaching. You know, by the time I retired, I was doing rock show programs after school with over 100 kids. It was that popular. But by my later years, starting into my 30s, I started writing about it. And I started writing about rock music history locally and and in a broader and wider sense. And that kind of, it kind of progressed along to writing uh, articles for newspapers and magazines to doing books, you know. And in the end, uh, you know, I did 14 books and probably about uh, 400 articles and uh, just finished a 15th book, although I, I co-wrote it with someone. But uh, it's my passion. It's my life. It's what I love to do. And you can probably tell by the speed of my voice and my talking that I love to talk about it, too. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've read a lot of your stuff too. I mean, I, not just the books, but uh, some of the pieces you've contributed through the years uh, through some great magazines like Goldmine and uh, Record Collector and some really, I love the UK magazines, uh, Mojo and Uncut. I've been a regular reader probably now for going on, you know, 18, 19 years. And those those are some great articles about how you, par- I mean, and then that kind of parlayed for me uh, interest in some of the books. And uh, before we get to the Guess Who story, I just, and we want to put a little wrap on what you've written, uh, some good stuff. I love that Arthur Lee book was so amazing. I mean, when I first saw the review uh, in Uncut, I, I was just, you know, I had to get it. I had to get this book because of, of just, you know, for him, for an example, uh, that group's history, for an example, not something that really, really goes beyond the basic cliff notes of things. I mean, if you're a, a truly a music appreciator, you'll know about forever changes. But for you know the casual listener, it's not really a, 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 that's something that's been in the priority uh, queue for, for a lot of years. But the way, what you did to that is you, you gave it such respect to Arthur Lee's story and the story of love that I, I, it, it was a well-detailed, and I told you off mic, a very entertaining book. And I just have to give you kudos for that one. And another book, uh, you put uh, Randy's book, when you put Randy Backman's book together, I, when I first got it in the mail and paperback, I'm like, wow, this is amazingly large and it was so engaging. I didn't want to ever take a, take the, uh, put it down. So just an example of two books that I got really enjoyed, man, just really, it was a further example of just some of the good work and just some of the attention to detail and the way you could help tell the story of a person's life that I have just such mad respect for for you, sir. Well, uh, thank you. It, it, they, are, they are the proverbial labor of love. I mean, if I was... If I was doing this kind of writing for a living, then I'd be writing about Madonna or writing about Jerry Garcia, you know, because those kind of books sell in, in huge numbers. But I'm fortunate that uh, I'm able to write uh, books about artists that interest me. And I think the artists that may have flown uh, below the radar, like Gene Clark of The Birds, you know, or the Flying Burrito Brothers, and oh, yeah. even Buffalo Springfield, uh, these guys kind of f- flew under the radar, and love fits into that perfectly. And I was fortunate with the love book. I mean, it was a book I wanted to do for years. But, you know, but then Arthur died. And, um, you know, a few years after that, through a friend, I connected with Arthur's widow. And she was a little nervous at first, because I mean, there's there's some dark sides to Arthur's story. for sure. But, um, you know, she read some of my other works and felt comfortable enough that I would tell the story, you know, right, I guess. And uh, so she gave the okay to do it. And then she kind of introduced me to a lot of Arthur's friends and that kind of helped again as well. But what really, I think, is one of the um, the real, I don't want to say bonuses, but certainly a, a, a real coup in the book is having Arthur's voice. Arthur had written a memoir. It was never published. And it was just almost like random thoughts all over the place. And it wasn't well written, but it was still his his insights, his thinking. And she gave that to me and allowed me to extract from it, you know, passages. So in the book you have, you know, again, in in my book, you've got, you know, again, I like to cast a wide net. So I interviewed, you know, 50 or 60 people. But uh, I'm also able to have Arthur's Arthur's voice in it too, as if he's taking part in this book. So uh, I I think that's a real plus uh, for, for that book. And I'm very proud of it. As I said to you before we started the interview, uh, it's the book, I think it's my best writing. And I've written you know, books since that book. But I think it still represents my best work, my best research, and my best uh, my writing. And it's a very compelling story. But it's always a challenge when you can't interview the subject. 
And it was the second book I did where the subject had passed away. And the first one was the Gene Clark book, Gene Clark from the Birds, and he had passed away. So I really had to cast a wide net. I interviewed over 100 people to, to, to really paint a full portrait of, uh, of the man and the artist. Kind of the same thing with Arthur, too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, couldn't talk to him, but I had, his, you know, I had his voice to put in the book. But I couldn't sit down and talk with him. Um, so, you know, again, it, 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 it forces me as a researcher and writer to really, as I said, cast that wide net as far out as I can and draw in from others their impressions, their recollections, their insights about Arthur. Oh, the snot has caked against my pants It has turned into crystal There's a bluebird sitting on a branch I guess I'll take my pistol I've got it in my hand Because he's on my land And so the story ended You, you know it oh so well Oh shit, you need I'll tell you I recognize your artillery I have seen you many times before Once when I was in India And I was on my land Why can't you understand? And so the story ended You, you know it oh so well Or should you need I'll tell you on my land. And 
I talked about Randy Bachman's book because you mentioned about the Beatles, you know, how, uh, you know, and I, and it was kind of a, a revelation to me, you know, because we always think about the Beatles, we think of America, we think about how they just cracked, Beatlemania was all over the place, but in, in reading Randy's book... I, I discovered more that, that that up north, up in Manitoba, not that few mile a few miles away from the border here, from where we were broadcasting. There were kids up there listening to these albums, and uh, whether you know the, they were were they just the Capitol releases, or did you guys get the VJ uh, stuff? Capitol releases, yeah. And they were being played on the radio here, uh, you know, six months before the Beatles showed up in the Ed Sullivan Show. So you know, for for a number of us, and I I knew the Beatles music because I was hearing in the radio since you know the previous fall. Um, I knew who they were, so it was exciting to see the the the, the guys who were making the music that we've been listening to on the radio here. I think for a lot of uh, Americans, they hadn't heard the music until they heard "I Want to Hold Your Hand," which you know was already rising up the charts when the when the band appeared in you know '64 uh, on the Ed Sullivan Show. But we, we were sort of ready for it. And speaking of Randy Bachman, I mean Chad Allen and the Reflections. We're playing Beatle music, you know, from the time, you know, Love Me Do was released in, you know, late 62, early 63. They were playing that music because they had a pipeline. And I mean that in a figurative sense. They had, um, you know, friends in the UK who would send them records. So they were doing British music, which included Beatle music and Cliff Richard and the Shadows and Marty Wilde and all of that. They were playing that music here in Winnipeg when we weren't even hearing it on the radio, even at that point, too. So it made them different, it made them unique, and um, it certainly made that music familiar to us when it finally hit North America. I love you, because you tell me things I want to know. And it's true that it really only goes to show. I know that I, 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 I should never 
started into uh, the story of, of what became the Guess Who. I think the best place to start would be a guy, they probably wouldn't be the band without him, because he was in and out, and he kind of ended up with, with Brave Belt for a while, too, with, with Randy later on, is is Chad Allen. And, 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 you know, sometimes Chad Allen's story kind of gets pushed to the back by, again, by the more casual listener that, you know, knows the Guess Who from the hits, you know, and that's not a bad thing. But for, for those who have discovered and kind of went in and, and, and read more of bio information, you, you find out more about, about this man and just, you know, how important he was in his role. Uh, you know, in in the inevitable success of this group, because it goes way back even before there was even a guess who you mentioned uh, channel in the, in the reflections, but also back to Allen and the Silvertone. So let's go back in time and talk a little bit about Chad Allen as uh, things start to build up. He starts to make connections with guys like Randy Backman, just the things that uh, get the origin story of the guess who off and running. Well, you know, just before I do the actual history, just just to put it in perspective, Chad Allen is a kingmaker that history has forgotten. Sadly, there'd be no Guess Who without Chad Allen. There'd be no, therefore, there'd be no BTO without Chad Allen because, I mean, Randy may not have achieved any success. There'd be no Burton Cummings. There'd be, you know, there'd be no Mood Jaja and on and on. All these, all these bands and all these artists who, in one way or another, began with their connection to Chad Allen. He is, he's the man. But he didn't achieve the big, big success that the Guess Who did. Uh, you know, later with Cummings or with uh, Brave Belt, who became BTO. But the Guess Who story does start with uh, Alan Coble, is his name. He lived on Melbourne Avenue in East Kildonan. East Kildonan is like a neighborhood of Winnipeg. You know, Winnipeg is, is um, like a lot of cities. It's got neighborhoods in it and communities. And East Kildonan was one of those communities. And like a lot of Ukrainian-Canadian kids, their parents got them playing accordion. And so Chad Allen took accordion for several years, and he even taught accordion lessons when he was a teenager. But once he heard, um, you know, the Beatles, well, the Beatles, Elvis Presley, and you know, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, that kind of music, he wanted to play guitar and he wanted to sing and, and perform that kind of music. 
So he put together uh, well, what you said is Alan Silvertones, sometimes known as Al and the Silvertones, at Miles McDonnell Collegiate. And that's really when you, when you look at the story of all these different successful musicians and bands that have come out of this you know, largely small Winnipeg music scene, it starts at a high school, high school friends, buddies, getting together in someone's basement just to, to play and have fun and you know, at different musical levels. Some may have been already accomplished on the guitar or on the drums. Others were just kind of starting out. So you, you get people kind of coming and going, and Alan Silvertones had uh, you know, a number of personnel changes, but uh, Alan Coble was uh, always the front man and lead singer in the band. And in about 1961, he changed his name, not legally until years later, but he began calling himself Chad Allen. And the Chad came from the Chad Mitchell trio. So that, and you know, and of course, Allen being his, his name, became Chad Allen. And by this point, the Silvertones were, were undergoing, again, a lot of personnel changes. And uh, one of the guys who joined was from the St. Vitell neighborhood band called the Jaywalkers. His name was Jim Cale. And Jim Cale was a bass player, and a very talented bass player. Uh, very melodic in the way he played. He, just did, he didn't just thump, thump, thump the root notes of a chord. He was very melodic. So he stood out. And he was, um, you know, a, a, a guy that was going to be going somewhere in music. So we start with an Iskodonan band. And as they sort of become a little better known, they start drawing on musicians from other communities, neighborhoods within uh, Winnipeg. So Jim Cale joins, and very shortly after, Jim Cale brings along another St. Patel guy named Bob Ashley, who's a, a, a classically trained piano player, very talented, great ear. So Ashley joins on piano. So these two guys from, from St. Patel join uh, an East Kildonan band. Meantime, their guitar player from East Kildonan, from Miles Mac, has to quit the band for whatever reason, and so there's a guy playing in West, out of West Kildonan, and he's been playing in polka bands. And ethnic music is a big part of the roots of Winnipeg music. Is You had such a multicultural um, character to the city. And by multicultural, then, I mean European. And all the different ethnic groups had their own culture, pop culture, music, song, dance, all of that. And you know, a very strong Ukrainian population in Winnipeg. So Randy Backman had been playing in a, in a, a polka band, playing uh, Ukrainian weddings with uh, a, a guy who was about two or three years younger than him named Gary Peterson. They then joined a rock and roll band called uh, Mickey Brown and the Velvetones, who got a lot of attention around town. So Randy was kind of known. And so Chad Allen put out the word he was looking for a guitar player. Randy got, you know, heard about that and came and auditioned. But Randy was auditioning for rhythm guitar. Chad was playing lead. But Chad was also singing. And Chad found it difficult to sing and play lead. So they were doing uh, a Cliff Richard song. And it came to the guitar solo. And Chad, because as he was singing, he couldn't get into the solo. Randy immediately picked up on the solo and played it all the way through. Because Randy has a great ear. <laughs> and so after that, Chad said, listen, I think I'll just play rhythm and sing. And you can play lead. And then, and then a couple of weeks later... Randy tells Chad, the, the drummer we have isn't very good. We need to bring in my friend Gary Peterson. So they audition Gary Peterson literally at 11.30 at night on a school night. His dad drives him over with his drum kit. They set it up in the living room of Chad's parents' house, and Gary passes the audition. So by 1962, you've got the nucleus of some of the best young musicians in Winnipeg. Chad Allen, Randy Backman. Gary Peterson on drums, Jim Cale on bass, and Bob Ashley on uh, piano. 
And they really do become, in Jim Cale's words, the best jukebox band in the city. They could cover any style of music. But they also realized that original music was the key to success. So both Chad and Randy were beginning to write songs. And in uh, late 1962, they go down to K-Bank Studios in Minneapolis. And the reason they went to K-Bank was they bought uh, the Trash Man record, The Bird is the Word. Oh, yes. And they saw on the label of the 45 was recorded at K-Bank Studios, Minneapolis. Studios in Winnipeg were at records, were at radio stations. And they only had as much as two tracks, which means you could overdub once. But K-Bank back then had three tracks. So it was like, wow, what can we do with that other track? So they, they journeyed down there in, in uh, December of 62 and recorded their debut single called A Tribute to Buddy Holly. And it was a cover of a British song by Mike Berry and the Outlaws and uh, released on the Can-Am label in early 63. Whoa, oh, 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 yeah.
that really opened up the band. Having a record opened up the band to be able to travel because the record got played in Western Canada. It got played in uh, you know North Dakota and uh, Northern Minnesota, and I'm sure it got played in Thief River Falls. So the band began to tour more and more, and they continued to release more singles, and they started to write their own songs as well. So by 64, they're the best band pretty much in, uh, in the prairie provinces of Canada and Northwest Ontario. And uh, the best musicians, they've, they're releasing records regularly. They're like big stars, okay? Uh, at this point, they changed their name to Chad Allen and the Expressions because there was a group in Detroit called The Reflections. And they had a hit in 64 with a song called Just Like Romeo and Juliet. And they had, they had trademarked the name. So Chad Allen and the Reflections, and by the way, they took Reflections because they loved the shadows in England. Shadows, Reflections, same kind of thing. Well, the second single that they recorded after tribute to Buddy Holly was on Quality Records. Can-Am, the label that had their first single, was again a small label. Quality was all across Canada. So they, they realized that there was something happening with this band here in Winnipeg and signed them, for peanuts, of course, and their second single, Shy Guy. Uh, written by Chad Allen. That became uh, their first quality records release. I'm such a shy guy Don't know what I'll do People say that I Should fall in love with you But every time that you get close to me You get me so mixed up Oh, golly gee You know I've got so much to say Guess I'll pull it off another day Cause I'm a shy guy Sometimes I wonder why I'm a shy guy I never thought that she Would fall in love with me If I could get her alone with me somehow I'm sure I'm not shy when I pull it tight Don't know if anyone could be Half as shy as me I'm a shy guy Shy guy, that's what they call me They don't know that I really love you Oh, they don't know that I'm a fool for you Oh, but someday I'm gonna show them I'll fall in love and they're gonna know them That I'm a guy who isn't shy Wonder why I'm a shy guy, but I could never be shy when you're with me. Cause when it comes to loving you, I guess there's no one else who gives me happiness. Don't care if people passing by, they all think that I'm such a shy guy. I'm a shy guy. So by 64, they're releasing records, you know, singles regularly, not an album yet, but singles regularly on quality. In December of 64, they, they had been journeying to Minneapolis each time to record these songs, okay? 
But it was now, uh, it was winter, and they didn't want to make the trip all the way down to Minneapolis in winter. We all know what, what driving in winter in, in northern Minnesota and in <laughs> Manitoba in Canada is like. So the manager was a guy named Bob Burns, and Bob Burns hosted a TV show called Teen Dance Party. And Teen Dance Party was like uh, American Bandstand. Teens showed up, and they danced to records, and Bob Burns was the host. He managed them now, so... Teen Dance Party was uh, filmed at CJAY TV. It's a local local independent uh, TV station. So one night in December, 1964, um, Chad Allen and the Expressions played a community club gig that night. Okay, which meant four four fifty five oh fifty minute sets with ten minute breaks in between. So they played you know all night all evening and played till one and then packed up all the gear and went to the TV station. They actually bribed the security guard with five bucks to let them in. And they set up their equipment around one mic. There was only one mic that Burns used to use to announce the songs the kids were going to dance to, hung the mic from the ceiling, set up the equipment, the amps and drums in a semicircle to record their next single. You know, quick, fast, and easy with Burns producing it. Uh, rather than going to Minneapolis. And one of the songs, they recorded two songs. One of them was a cover of a song that had been a hit in England in 1960, 6-0, called Shaken All Over, written by Frederick Heath, who was better known as Johnny Kidd, had a band called Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And it's another one of those songs that had been sent over by Chad's friend in England, and uh, Chad and the band had been playing that song in their their sets for years. They decided to record that and another song called Till We Kissed, which was a cover of an old Arthur Alexander song that they learned from a Jerry and the Pacemakers album. So they recorded them both. But the thing about Shaken All Over is it had such a raw, exciting sound to it. And it had what Elvis used to call the slap back echo, which gives the vocals a lot more depth. It almost sounds like it's almost sung in a reverb unit or in a cave and there was just such an immediacy to that recording. And they sent it off uh, to Quality Records. The tape sent off to Quality Records in Toronto. And Quality Records, when they pressed it, they put Till We Kissed on the A side and Shaken All Over on the B side. Till We Kissed was not, not that great a song. I don't think it would have been the hit that they did end up getting. But DJs began to flip over the record and play Shaken All Over, and they loved it. So what Quality decided to do was, see, back in those days, there was no CanCon. So radio stations didn't have to play Canadian music. And in fact, they didn't play much Canadian music until they were forced to. But there was no denying the, uh, the, the energy of Shaken All Over. So what Quality Records did is they, they pressed up their promo labels to send to radio stations all across Canada. And they put Shaken All Over. And they decided to play a little bit of a subterfuge. And they simply put, guess who? Just guess who with a question mark. That little trick prompted radio programmers all over Canada, from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island, to give the record a listen. Like, well, who who was this guess who? Played it and loved it. And then the record got charted. So it was released in January 16, 1965. And by March, it was uh, top top five or better, most places number one, from one end of Canada to the other. And, And the band got a phone call from Quality Records saying, hey, we got a new name for you. It's Guess Who? And they hated it. <laughs> they thought it was really dumb. And Chad the mo- hated it the most because it wasn't Chad Allen and the Guess Who, just Guess Who. But you can't argue with a hit. So that's how they became 
the, you know, the, the was added later, but they were simply known as Guess Who. And their first album came out as Guess Who, Chad Allen and the Expressions is kind of like a subtitle. But certainly that song became, in the, and it led the band to become, in 65, Canada's first national rock star band. Because Canadian, the Canadian music scene was so regional that you could have bands having hits in Vancouver, but that never made it across the Rockies to anywhere else. Bands in Toronto who would have hits that we never heard played in Winnipeg. And bands in, in, in Halifax and Nova Scotia, nobody heard them outside of, of uh, the Maritime provinces. But Shaken All Over by Guess Who was right across Canada. So it's kind of in many ways ground zero for what would become a very thriving Canadian music scene.
also uh, for the band as uh, this this discovery, this single, and helping them to, to gain momentum. There was also a significant moment in the band's history, not that long after, towards the end of the year, when uh, there was a lineup change and a very significant lineup change that would really uh, put them on the path to to, uh, to great success. I want to talk about the uh, the, um, the the lineup change and the emergence of another guy who we talked about, who was in, in another band uh, on the Winnipeg scene uh, of, of those years and of that time, the Devrons. I want to talk about the uh, the exit of Bob Ashley and Burton Cummings coming into the fold because this is another one of those seismic moves that really shaped where the band was heading. Well, I think you hit it on the head when you said seismic because it did become you know of huge significance. Well, okay, so 65... Shaking All Over is a hit. Tossing and Turning, uh, Shaking All Over is released in the States, and it reaches number 22 on the Billboard charts. For a band that hadn't toured in the States, had no prominence in the States, nobody knew who they were in the States, to get that high up was a big deal. But they had a Winnipeg manager. They had a Canadian record label. They didn't know how to capitalize on it at all. So subsequent records in the States didn't do very well. So they were kind of tagged as a one-hit wonder band through 65. They continued to release records. They came to New York and recorded at Scepter Records. And that was the label of, uh, you know, B.J. Thomas and Dionne Warwick, you know, who was recording songs with Bacharach and David. So that was a big deal. But their career in the States kind of died fairly fast. But in Canada, they continued to release top 10 singles. Okay. But at this point, Chad Allen was uh, some of the music was kind of changing a little bit. So he was having a little few problems with his voice. But before anything to do with that happened, Bob Ashley, the piano player in the band, he was never happy, very, very shy guy, never happy about being in the, in the, the, uh, in the public and being seen in public and being on stage. And in the summer of 65, the band toured with a number of other acts, including the Turtles, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, uh, the Kingsmen. And uh, they... they they also toured with the Shirelles and the Crystals. And the Crystals, when they would do He's a Rebel, they would drag Bob Ashley out from the wings and stick a leather jacket on him and kind of, you know, he's a rebel and he's a geeky looking guy and almost make fun of him. And he didn't like any of that at all. So he was tired of the road. He was also going through a lot of personal issues. And um, nobody knew at the time, about five years ago, I managed to track Bob down because he virtually disappeared off the you know, Winnipeg music scene. Turned out he'd been in Toronto for, for a number of years and uh, was a very successful musical arranger for musical theater. But he admitted to me, he said, you know, I was just coming to terms with the fact that I was gay. And it, gay at the time in 65 wasn't something that you came out of the closet and told everybody about. So I wasn't happy with the lifestyle of being a musician. So he left the band, December of 65. They needed a piano player. But they also knew that Chad wasn't very happy. Chad was kind of, you know, his voice was having trouble. So they wanted to make sure that the guy that got on piano could also sing. Burton Cummings was making a lot of noise around Winnipeg uh, with a band called the Deverons. I know it's sometimes seen as Devron, but it's Deveron, Deverons. And they initially formed at Burton's High School in the North End, St. John's High School. And uh, in April of 65, the Guess Who were an opening act for Jerry and the Pacemakers at the Winnipeg Arena. Big show. I mean, that's the closest we got to the Beatles by getting Jerry and the Pacemakers in town. And the other opening act was at Everons with Burton Cummings. And um, Burton Cummings idolized Chad Allen and the Expressions and the Guess Who, because they, they were stars to him. Um, so on, on stage that night, 
They'd rented a grand piano because Jerry and the Pacemakers have a piano player. So from a music store in town, they rented a grand piano. Burton, being only 17 years old and cocky and full of himself, that's just the kind of guy he was. During the Devron's opening set, he gets on top of the piano with his Beetle boots and starts dancing on it and scuffing it up. And Randy is standing on the sidelines watching this guy and thinking, wow, this guy can sing, he can play, and he is really quite the dynamic performer. So that kind of stuck in Randy's head. So when December came along, when they needed to replace Bob Ashley, Burton Cummings was uh, the guy they chose. And again, Burton, could, Burton joined playing piano and organ. A lot of people think he replaced Chad right away, but that's not so. For six months, we had Burton Cummings and Chad Allen in the Guess Who, and I remember seeing them twice with that lineup, and they could play anything. younger okay by the time he joined he had just turned uh, 18 chad was older 
So Chad could sing the Buddy Holly kind of stuff and the early rockish stuff. Burton could sing the Eric Burton and the Animal stuff and Paul Revere and the Raiders and this kind of really hard rocking music. And the band sort of started to, to move towards his style. And Randy started writing songs for Burton's voice and not for Chad's voice. So at the spring of 66, Chad's not happy. He sees Burton taking away his uh, prominence in the band, which wasn't the case. That was really Chad feeling a little insecure. And in the uh, 1st of June, Chad of 66, Chad leaves the band, and Burton Cummings then becomes the de facto lead singer. And what you got in that band is Randy Bachman, Jim Cale, Gary Peterson, and Burton Cummings on keyboard. A little later, he'll add guitar and the lead voice. And that's the lineup of the Guess Who that we know from September of 66 until May of 1970. And they had to work hard because they had had a hit and they hadn't been unable to kind of follow it up. Their lead singer had left. They weren't Chad Allen and anything anymore. In the summer of 1966, they relocated for the summer to Saskatchewan and they played almost every night. 400 bucks a night, four sets a night. And they worked their tails off. They played anywhere and everywhere. Meanwhile, they were also, Randy and, and Burton, starting to write songs. So we've got the nucleus of something germinating here. We've got two talented songwriters. We've got a dynamic singer, no question about it, and a dynamic performer and great musicians all, and they're all willing to work their butts off. And, you know, I mean, they had a lot of bumps along the road. They made a trip to England that was a disaster in 67 and cost them $25,000. Clock on the wall says 12 noon Guess I better get up soon The clock on the wall says 20 to 1 And there's things to be done Yeah, the clock on the wall keeps pushing me That's not the way I want my life to be If you take any pushing from that clock on the wall You won't be happy at all Quarter to three, I got people to see. Meet my friend Clive, stop drinking by five, end up wishing I weren't alive. I look at the clock, it says twenty to nine. I gotta meet my girl on time. She puts me down and then by twenty to ten, I'm out drinking again. Yeah, the clock on the wall keeps pushing me That's not the way I want my life to be If you take any pushing from that clock on the wall You won't be happy at all The clock on the wall strikes the midnight hour I'm feeling dirty and sour I feel the clock pushing Like the blade of a knife I want to end my life But it ain't no use I'm used to this abuse This is my moment of truth Life is empty My friends are all gone But like the clock on the wall I'll go on and on and on 
This program is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and is produced by Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ Thief River Falls East Grand Forks. Community Radio, Pioneer 90.1.